0: This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield.
1: It's the Blood Red podcast, courtesy of the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along. UEFA and French authorities... Falling over one another to point the finger of blame as the Champions League chaos continues to play out from Paris. Sadio Mane creeps closer to a Liverpool exit, perhaps, and will reflect on the Reds parade through the city on Sunday. We're here to do all of that. We have the face that runs the place, TV's Joe Rimmer and a brand fake boy fresh from his adventure to Paris. It is Matt Addison. Chaps, so I hope you're both well. We've given Gorsty Doily and the O some time off after their own uh, escapades out in Paris. But uh, yeah, chaps, I hope you're well. Joe, I'll throw it over to you. And I mean, just try and, I suppose, recap the last 48 hours. It seems to have been utter madness in, in, in more ways than one.
0: Yeah, it's a difficult one to throw at me, recap the that 48 hours. Um, oof, I think it, it kind of went a bit like this, didn't it? Hope, celebration, um, frustration, anger, sadness, more frustration, more anger. And then a little bit of defiance and a little bit of celebration uh, and then today again more anger um, as we see some of the reports uh, coming out of France and some of the things that French ministers are having to say. It's, um, you know, it's one thing to lose a final, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can't go and win them all, big games, you know, a high level sport, you know, I, I really think, I really think this is forgotten in the, the banter of football as I wrote yesterday, you know, when you go and a big final you can be the best team on the planet and you know things don't have to go your way and you can you can lose and that's one thing but to um to experience what Liverpool fans um have to experience outside the stadium on saturday night um and then see the types of lies that UEFA and some of these um french ministers are now telling um as they all scramble to, to save themselves and to to not admit um any fault um it's just another thing entirely and and you know Look, there are certain reasons that I won't get into and we all know that Liverpool fans I think feel this more but we're in 2022 and we're still in a situation where you have got government ministers basically lurching from one story to the next to try and protect themselves and rather than just say look we didn't do this right and we're going to look it why we didn't do it right and what we can learn from it and how we can get better and we're sorry um, you know I don't know it's a cliche, isn't it? But sorry does seem to be the hardest word. I don't know why they cannot just say, "Sorry, we got this wrong." Um, but no, they don't want to do that. They obviously want to just say it's British fans. But the evidence is there for all to see. You know, I was I was working Saturday night from our offices, and we you know we were quick onto it. I think you know um, we wrote a lot of stories about different things, and I've seen a lot of video. Um, I've read a lot of accounts, and you know. Um, the, the videos, the, the testimonies from fans, journalists. Um, I think some of the, the, the journalism around it has been superb, and, and they have shown that you know it's it not lies. You know, I'm sure there was the the odd flashpoint, but you know, 95 more than that, 99 percent of fans were behaving themselves. It was it was chaotic organization, um, bad reactions from police who who seems to think that the best way of dealing with any crowd is to just spray tear gas at it. and and stand as far away as possible Um, and it's astounding so yeah we shouldn't have to talk about this we should be yeah we should be sort of sad about the result and analysing a defeat and and celebrating the Cups Liverpool have won but instead we're we're talking about things that really should be long gone out of football but sadly as it's proven again they're not
1: Yeah no most definitely I mean Ian, Paul and Theo did a great podcast yesterday prior to leaving Paris talking about everything that that they encountered and saw. Matt, you were out there as well as as a match goer. I mean, what was your sort of take on things? What did you see? What was your experiences?
2: Yeah, very, very similar to what people will have, have read, to be honest. I think I fortunately, and it was just by complete good fortune, managed to, to miss the worst of it. I managed to, to get away quickly at the end. So wasn't sort of involved in, in some of the things that we've seen in the, the videos and, and the accounts post-match. But yeah, from from start to finish, really just really policed in, in a bizarre way. Um, It it would be bizarre, really, to to kind of see that in in any kind of situation, any any stadium, any location where the final was taking place. It would be strange. But when you think of somewhere like the Stade de France, which is is used to hosting these big events, you think of of the events that have been there in in recent years. It's not like this was was something that was thrown together. I know there's been a kind of excuse put out there of, well, it, it was going to be held in Russia, but then it's been changed three or four months ago. I mean, it doesn't take three or four months to come up with a, a more comprehensive and, and sort of sensible plan really than than what was in place i mean i think i arrived roughly around the, the time that our lads obviously ian paul and, and theo arrived and, and kind of had the, the same experiences that they recounted on the podcast yesterday so i won't go sort of too much into that but the kind of funneling people into to small spaces children being squashed up against fences people trying to, to kind of help each other out that was was the kind of, uh, of of fear really that there was going to be something much much more serious than than what was the case and just the the blatant lies around it are, are really disappointing the fact that even in the stadium you know, there, there were signs up there was things on the screen to say it was it was fans arriving late at the stadium that is it is just blatantly not true everyone there knew that that wasn't true everyone there was was kind of two three four hours early and and queued up i was in a queue for for about two hours to get into the ground and by the time i got to the front of of that queue and and got through there was more people in the queue than when i'd started in the queue so you you can kind of imagine the kinds of of numbers really trying to funnel people into sort of three or four gates when there was a queue of you know several thousand people it it was just not it was just not a sensible or or logical way of of doing things and i think once you've sort of put all of, of these fundamental errors together you you could really have have had a a much more serious situation than than what was the case so you'd like to think that that people would learn from this you'd like to think that in future things will be different but you know we can only sort of put forward the accounts that we had i think it was it was important as well that obviously a lot of of journalists were getting there at, at that kind of time it was you know that kind of time really that people were getting there to to be there well in advance and and in time. And I think, you know, uh, as Joe says, the kind of journalism and the pieces that have been written around it, the accounts of it are there for everyone to see. Everyone who was there knows what they experienced. um, And and those are are the people you've got to believe really in terms of of the way that this unfolded. It's it's a good thing as well that we've kind of got the, the technology, we've got the videos, we've got the footage, it's not like, you know, it's it's one person's word against another. There is literally evidence of, of what happened and, and when people were there. So, yeah, I managed to kind of avoid the worst of it. And, and I'm very much obviously thankful for, for that being the case.
1: In terms of what Matt said there, I mean, it is so different, isn't it, the modern age now where testimonies are able to be yeah and quickly across social media, the journalism, our guys, but other outlets has has been first class in terms of detailing exactly what has happened. And I mean, it's telling, isn't it, how UEFA and the French authorities are very quick over the last day or so to be pointing the finger of blame when all Liverpool have done is put out their statement and demanded answers, demanded there be an investigation into this. Because as well, this isn't an isolated occasion this season at UEFA finals. The Europa League final, Rangers fans had some horror stories out of Seville, as well of the the experiences they had across two cities in, in Paris and Seville, and it's not even as though this is as Gosty said yesterday. This would have been the primary story, even if Liverpool had had gone on and won their seventh European Cup, because of the horror stories of of what you have heard from supporters and the fact that it isn't just a case of. Liverpool haven't won the football match and, and this is, is getting spoken about. It, it needs a thorough investigation because from what we've seen and heard, it, it is absolutely astounding that nobody came away with serious injury.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we can thank thank our lucky stars, can't we, that no one did. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there some scenes I think, in Lisbon as well earlier this year. I mean, it, I think... Um, I think there's a, there's a feeling among some, and, and it's, you know, it's difficult to put into words, really, but I think there's a feeling among some foreign, um, you know, police perhaps or, or authorities perhaps that British football fans and, and treat them a certain way, and and, and unfortunately, um, you know, that has been that's proven to be very hard to shake for, um, for for sets of fans from this country and from Britain, because you know I, I think. I think if you you look at the difference between the way the Real Madrid fans were treated and the Liverpool fans but despite there being no evidence of any of any of any violence or of any threat um but Liverpool fans funneled into a, a small space um and um and then the the fans at the end the, the police at the end um, in front of the fans I, I mean I think goes a long way to just tell you what the attitude is um, amongst the, the the authorities towards um, British football fans and you know, that's just, it's up to the UEFA and, and the people that put these organi- uh, these competitions together to be bigger than that, to make sure that those things don't happen. And, um, you know, I, that, I think it speaks volumes about the, the conduct of Liverpool fans that despite the scenes that we saw, there wasn't any violence. scenes. They, they could have reacted in a totally different manner, but they didn't. They behaved themselves very, very well. And, you know, it just exposed the French police for what they were, which is a very, very disorganized and, and poor way of policing a, a, a major crowd. I mean, you've seen some of the videos of, of fans, that that one video, which I, I, I just boggles my mind of of, of the fan. Um, and if you haven't seen it, um, I, I recommend you go and dig it out. There's a fan at, at a turnstile, and he's just trying to get his ticket to work. He's not even. He's not even. He's getting help. Yeah, he's not. With a steward, yeah, he's, not he's, he's not even at anyone. He's Yeah, and a policeman casually walks over and, and tear gas him in the face, sprays him right in the face, and then just steps back like he's just done the most normal thing in the world. And the fan, to his to his absolute credit, and I cannot believe. Barely even reacts. He sort of like takes it as if it's a, as if it's normal and he should expect it, and he carries on trying to just get through the turnstile like a normal match going fan. And around him are families, you know, young young kids and older older fans. And and I, and I just think surely the, the French should be saying the first thing they should be saying is we are going to look at why our police reacted in the way that they did. Um, I, look, I'm sure there were fans out there with fake tickets. And I'm sure there fans out there that tried to bunk into the game. I'm not saying they're Liverpool fans. There were certainly some some locals that you could see. But, you know, perhaps there were. But but that doesn't, um, you know, that certainly wasn't on a large scale. It certainly wasn't on anywhere at the scale that has that, that been made out. It certainly wasn't the reason for, for the way that they reacted. And that shouldn't justify that, that way of policing. It, you know, at the end of the day, these things happen at big games. They happen at every big game and every major field without expecting some sort of, touts um counterfeit tickets people bunking in or or drunk and disorderly that's that's just part of organizing a big event and if they can't handle that then they're not doing their jobs properly and they certainly don't handle that by by holding innocent people through a small space and then having and then having french police tear gas it's it's absolutely crazy and and why they can't apologize and hold their hands up to that i'll never know instead we're having to watch videos of them. Stand there and say, "Oh, there was, you know, there was forty percent fake tickets," which doesn't, even, you know, it, it doesn't even work as a basic basic maths. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And they've gone from saying it was late fans to fake tickets. Well, which was it? You know, it, it's it's astounding they they're trying these things. And you know, when in the face of clear evidence, there is clear evidence. Go and watch the pictures and the video. And and you know, there is no one that has found any video evidence of fans misbehaving or. Or people trying to force their way in, or bunk in, or fake tickets, or whatever. You know, it, it, if they have that evidence, then let's see it. Because I don't think they have. It's just, it's just excuses. Because again, the authorities can't look inward and say we've made mistakes. Um, and again, I, I just think that why can they not? Why can they not admit that they made mistakes? It's, it's, you know, the, the simplest thing to do in this situation would be to say we're really sorry that fans experienced that. On Saturday, they shouldn't experience it at a major final. We will investigate this and come out with a full report before jumping to silly conclusions and putting out statements in the way that they did.
2: They just, I think, you know, from from being in amongst those crowds at certain times, there just wasn't really any kind of common sense in terms of, of the policing. I mean, there was there was warnings beforehand about make sure you you keep your ticket close to you because people have been pickpocketing and, and there were examples that I saw within the crowds of, of that being the case. But then you just think, well, if you're trying to avoid that being, you know, a, a situation that you get yourself into, probably the last thing that you do is crowd people into a, a small space where, where that kind of thing can thrive. It, it just seemed like the... The logical things, that the little things that you could do, even you know, the, the the sort of sensible decisions which you would know from hosting these events in the past, you'd know how these things happen. It, it just, yeah, right from the the start, it just didn't seem didn't seem a sensible way of, of doing things. And when you add up those little things, obviously, then the bigger things become a, a an issue. And and fundamentally, if you can't admit that those mistakes were made from from the start, it just kind of spirals and and gets bigger from that point. So, yeah, just. Every little element of it, it just it just did not make sense.
1: The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Right, we'll move away from events in Paris. Of course, we will keep across it here on the Blood Red channel, across the Liverpool Echo website as well. So do keep across it. It won't be the last that we have heard from the Fallout from Paris. But for the sake of this podcast, Joe, I think it's healthy for us to move on and to to much cheerier topic as well of the parade that that Liverpool had yesterday. Of course, they wanted the Champions League trophy on the bus with them, but still with two domestic trophies there to show off and celebrate the season in which Liverpool competed in every single game possible to them. It was a great turnout. It was a great celebration of what in the end, no matter what a number of naysayers will say, is a fantastic season for the football club.
0: Absolutely. It's the type of season that, that most football clubs in this country would, um, would be anything for. Um, it is the type of season which has pretty much been, well, pretty much is unheard of. No other club has has reached the stages that Liverpool have, have reached this year. Um, you know, looking at the players yesterday, I thought Jordan Henderson's tweet um, just underlined his, his absolute class humility. Um and, and why is the absolute perfect captain for this for this football club, you know about how he got off the plane on on Sunday morning um, and thought it was going to be very difficult and and Liverpool fans transformed the mood for them and those players deserve that you know they put so much into this season, um, defying expectations, um, playing every single game that they could possibly play, um, winning two finals um, and um, reaching you know the final day of the league and losing out by points and, and such fine margins and, and again losing the Champions League final by a goal and again it was just an extraordinary goalkeeping display from Courtois and was superb, seems quite. Um, he seemed quite solid at the final whistle, um, which was um, a slight shame because I don't think anyone ever doubted his ability. Um, and, and he, he really did show what a good goalkeeper he was. Um, so yeah, a really sad set last seven days for Liverpool in terms of what they wanted to achieve, but what they did achieve was, was magnificent. And I, you know, I find it, I find football strange because I, you know, I, I saw a lot of people and I get that opposition fans are going to mock. I don't quite understand if I was a fan of it. Of any other club that that doesn't um you know that, that's let's be let's be perfectly frank here if i was a fan of, of Arsenal guy okay, you know I might be happy that Liverpool didn't win the European Cup I might be happy um, that they didn't win the, the um the Premier League but I wouldn't gloat because I just don't understand why you would gloat when you're not in a position to to really enjoy it. Okay maybe a Man City man f- fan might gloat but certainly fans of, of clubs that haven't achieved things. You know, certainly enjoy it privately. You can be very happy, but this gloating. and this and like these football accounts. I've seen a few of them, but now Liverpool reached three, three finals and, and failed to score in all three. I was thinking, actually, isn't the tweet Liverpool reached three, three finals and won two of them? Um, you know, this this banter era of football where everyone's going to be the first to make a joke. It's just crazy. You know, what these players have achieved is extraordinary. Any other club would give anything to do it. And Liverpool fans quite, quite rightly came out in their absolute numbers yesterday and enjoyed it. And, and I know I've said it said it after the you know after Everton stayed up the other, the other week and there were jubilant scenes and, and people were like, oh, why are you celebrating being 16th? They're not celebrating being 16th. They're celebrating a moment in time, which, you know, was joyous for them. And, you know, you don't you don't sit back and look at the table and, and add things up. You just did celebrate football, don't you? Who are these people that, like, the, the absolute joy-stealers in football that, that seem to want everyone to sit back and say, oh, well, don't celebrate the League Cup and the FA Cup because you wanted the Champions League and the League? Do you want this? Is You know, football is about joy and football is about moments. And if you cannot enjoy what Liverpool have done this season, then go and support. Go and... Go to another sport because it's really not worth it. Um, so I was really pleased to see the scenes in the city yesterday. It was it was great. It was a testament to what this club has done. It was great for the manager and the players, and um, you know. And I'm sure Liverpool will be back next season. There'll be plenty more to celebrate still.
1: Yeah, I know you were making your way back from, from Paris, Matt, so weren't part of the, the, the celebrations, haven't really been able to catch up on the scenes. But on that kind of gloating culture that is cancel culture, I suppose, for for Liverpool being able to celebrate their trophies. I mean, this is the season in which fans have been able to return and we've seen it across the game. Uh, fans getting onto pitches at the end of the seasons, like they did at, at Goodison Park to celebrate the fact that they survived. I mean, Football is about the fans. It's about giving something back. And I suppose yesterday's parade, whilst, yes, it's a victory parade to show off the cups, the way in which a number of the players have responded and spoken was it was their chance. Andy Robertson said it immediately after the final whistle. It was also the players' chance to give something back to the supporters of appearing on the top of the bus for the players to just... For one last time this season... Give them their appreciation for what Liverpool fans have... Because it's escapism, isn't it, football fans? As, as fans, you live your feelings through what you see of your team. And Liverpool fans this year have been on an incredible emotional roller coaster and journey, thought at one stage they could well be the first club to do the quadruple in British football. And therefore, yesterday is a chance to, to have that unity once more before all is said and done. And actually, remember this season for the positive, the success it was, rather than losing out in in the final in Paris amongst all the scenes we've already spoken about.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the last couple of matches were disappointing because Liverpool wanted to win the Premier League and they wanted to win the Champions League. But I think in three or four years' time, or maybe not even that, maybe in, in three or four months' time, we'll look back at, at this season and see it for what it was, which was a double-winning season, which, you know, for, for most teams, that's something that they could only dream of. I think it's, it's absolutely something to celebrate, the fact that Liverpool did it. I think Jurgen Klopp said it post-match possibly in his post-match press conference he said you know we're not doing this for anyone else we're doing this for us we're doing it because these players deserve it that the efforts that they've put in this is a team of course that won the premier league when they weren't able to celebrate with fans you've got the achievements of the women's team this season it wasn't about really anything other than liverpool fans and and liverpool's players having that moment and, and being able to enjoy it because you say that's that's what football's about, isn't it? If you can't celebrate these moments and you can't enjoy them and you can't go out onto the streets of, of Liverpool and, and celebrate these trophies, then what, what are you in it for? I think it, it just, you know, you, you see all of, of the social media stuff and you kind of see different opposition fans making a mockery of it and, and sort of deriding it, but it, it just, it doesn't really matter, does it? It says more about what, the the sort of achievements of of those teams have been this season if Manchester United and Gary Neville are jumping up and down because Liverpool haven't won the Champions League well I think that just says far more about Manchester United and the position that they're in rather than the position that Liverpool are in I think you know Liverpool have got to make the most of this I think the other thing as well as I, I said to you this morning didn't I it's it's one of those where if you're Liverpool you can't win for for years everyone's been saying it's a disgrace that Jurgen Klopp doesn't take the domestic cup seriously Liverpool go and win them, and now he's taking them too seriously. So it's just one of those. It's it, it's the world we live in, isn't it? Social media. There's always got to be someone taking the mick out of someone else. There's always got to be a winner or a loser, even when Liverpool quite clearly are the winners this season. They've come closer than anyone ever has to, to winning the quadruple. Let's be honest. So yeah, why not celebrate? Why not have fun? That's that's what that's what football's about, isn't it? That's that's what it's meant to be about, anyway.
1: It's one of those, isn't it, Joe? Where it's kind of if it was anyone but Liverpool, maybe, maybe Manchester United, maybe Man City, maybe you throw Chelsea into that equation, even, even maybe Arsenal. But if it were, if it were Wolves, if it were Leicester last season who won the FA Cup, have an open top bus parade, everyone goes, ah, good on them, they deserve that, they've come out in force, they've given their their team a send off. But for Liverpool, for some reason, it's the jealousy that exists around it.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think. Look, I think Liverpool is is an emotional football club, and I think that is what what makes it so great at times. That's why we why Anfield, and you know, I don't care what you say, you, you find me in another stadium that when it's when it unites in the way that Anfield does, you know, provides as good atmosphere. I honestly don't think there is one, and um, and I think you know, you know, as it's such an emotional football club, people like to prod it and poke it, and and, um, and laugh. At it when they can do, but you know, you look back at the I always remember that the West Brom thing when people are ah, that Klopp was celebrating the draw, it wasn't celebrating a draw, and, and it's like that now. It's like you know, you celebrate winning the League Cup, it's, it's not quite that, is it? It's celebrating an extraordinary season and celebrating a team that, and a manager that's in total harmony with their fan base. And you know, it, the, the, the hilarious thing about Gary Neville celebrating Gary Neville, by the way, who tipped Manchester United to win the league this year. That didn't last long, did it? So, you know, and spent, you know, the, after the, the match at Anfield, basically spending his commentary having a, a full meltdown on commentary about the state of his club. Yeah, I get that he's going to enjoy the Liverpool that Liverpool haven't won absolutely, and and I would enjoy if if Manchester United didn't win something. But I find it ironic that they've just appointed a manager. Um, in this desperate hope that he somehow becomes their Klopp and they, they'll transform their club and they've brought in they brought in Klopp's mentor for a bit in Rangier just to try and and do something that Liverpool are doing. You know, it, everyone you know wants to be like Liverpool and they, they they can deny it, but you know even Man City when they laugh at Liverpool, they desperately want to channel the same atmosphere. They desperately want to have the turnout that the fans have so that they can win the big prizes that gets them over the line. And, and I know that they've won leagues, but. If you want to get over the line in Europe, I do think that you need to channel those emotions. Real Madrid do it very, very well, don't they? You know, We, we saw the season, the way the Bernabeu, um got them over the line in big games and, and and they've become a club that knows how to operate in Europe. So I do think, it, I do think there's a lot of petty jealousy. And I think some people might say, well, why are you bothered about stuff that happens on social media? And perhaps in the role that I'm in, I live my life on social media and you know, I, I can't just up for the ball and forget about it when Liverpool lose. But, but yeah, I mean, I do find I will never understand for the life of me why you'd be the type of fan um, who who'd stick it, stick your head above the uh, the parapet and say ah, you you didn't win the Champions League when your club is is desperate is desperately in need of, of winning trophies. Uh, that is bizarre, and um, you know, I just don't understand it.
2: It was similar, wasn't it? When um, you mentioned before the, the not scoring a goal in finals thing, you've seen people this week say, "Oh, Liverpool have won two two trophies on penalties." Well, The, the crucial bit yeah. of that is Liverpool have won two trophies yeah. it, oh, the it, that, That's loses, literally it? how it works. Yeah. yeah.
0: That, yeah. <laughs> well, I have I have a mate name <laughs> who a Chelsea fan who said to me, "I still can't get over that you've um you've drawn two finals with us," and I was like. <laughs> but, hang on, the, the, the most glorious moment in your club's history was probably winning the Champions League in 2012 when you drew with Bayern Munich and won on penalties. You know, that's that's football, that's competition. You can't suddenly go, oh, well, actually, those penalties you thought, they didn't really count as wins, did they? What, what's a nonsense? Like, it, it it's it's strange how, you know, I, I, I think these fans that are trying to laugh are the ones that just sound crazy. They sound stupid. I mean, like... If I was a fan of another club, I certainly wouldn't be mocked for winning trophies. That is what you exist to do as a football club. Certainly, what Liverpool football club exists to do, and they've done it. You know, under you know, I think every season, other than his second season, they've reached the final or something. Haven't they? You know, they they've reached, you know, the League Cup final. They've reached the the UEFA Cup final, the Champions League final three times, the FA Cup final, and they they've won some things. They've had some really sad disappointing defeats but um but one constant about Klopp is he gets them there and you can't win them all you know manchester united didn't win everything in the 90s they had some close calls and some heartbreaks but what fills me with confidence is that every year under Klopp he gets them somewhere doesn't he so that's why i'd be confident going into next season because come what may they'll they'll fight on all fronts and there might be some heartbreak along the way but don't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, and you know you, you don't win European cups without getting to a few finals and having some harsh defeats. It's what it's all about, and, um, and Liverpool just keep on doing it. Maybe that's what people don't want.
1: The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, definitely right. Final part of today's pod. Then let's ponder what next for Liverpool. Then, and uh, I'll, I'll throw this one over to you. Joe. Said it said it just before about come what may, Liverpool will be challenging on all fronts. And I mean, immediately for me yesterday, seeing the scenes around the city and the celebrations, I kind of went back to 2018, 2019, thinking to myself, well, they said how much the failure in Kiev spurred them on the following season to go back and win the Champions League. Is that now going to be the blueprint, the mantra for doing a quadruple? I mean, it never has happened. It would be absolutely incredible and improbable, for them next year to launch a challenge for the quadruple. But surely the way this story seems to go for Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp is they may well fall first time around, but they'll come back and they'll make sure they get the job done.
2: Yeah, I've, I've written that a couple of times actually since what happened on, on Saturday night in terms of the game and, and that's the thing, isn't it? That's That's been the pattern under Jurgen Klopp is that whenever there has been a disappointment they seem to, to kind of channel that and, and put it into to the right sort of things for, for the following season whenever Liverpool have, have lost a big game obviously the last time they lost to Real Madrid they then win it the following season the, the league title they just missed out on by a point as they have done this season as well of course the following season they run away with it and I think I think that'll be it, won't it? You've, you've kind of had the the celebrations. Obviously, this season, it, it wasn't heartbreaking the same way that a season ended in a Champions League final defeat and, and there was nothing else to to kind of take from that. This season, there was two trophies to go with that, to build that confidence. There was a trophy parade to kind of give... I think five or six of, of the players that that hadn't experienced that that kind of experience. I think it all just ties in, doesn't it? For immediately now to to look at, at next season and, and start to to think, you know, what what could be for Liverpool? Because like Joe says, you, we pretty much know that they're going to be there or thereabouts. It's just a case of of how many can they get over the line? How many can they can they position themselves for that quadruple again? It's going to be interesting, isn't it, next season in terms of, of when the World Cup falls and, and that kind of thing. But I think that even could play into to Liverpool's hands. It it really does help, I think, when you kind of, as it will be next season, you've kind of got a block of about 16 or 17 Premier League games. Then you've got that six-week break and then you've got another block. You can kind of see Liverpool go going and, and, and looking at that first bit up until that World Cup. Win 15 out of the 16 games, put yourself in that kind of position, reset, do it again in the second half of the season. You can you can really start to see how already this Liverpool team will be basically planning ahead and, and looking ahead to the future. I think I think it was Jordan Henderson yesterday who was kind of talking about the the parade and the kind of the ability to kind of reset and, and refocus and take your mind off the disappointment. Look ahead to what. A, you have done already and, and what could also be to come. And I think I think that's got to be the message, hasn't it, for next season? We're not that far away from, from pre-season because of how early the, the season starts next year. Straight away, the focus is going to be, well, can we better what we've done this season? And I think for, for this group of players, you'd say with that manager, with the, the squad they've got, there's, there's no reason why they can't do that.
1: Yeah, Joe, how difficult, though, could it be if a certain Sadio Mane is to depart this
0: summer? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is you you don't go out to do a quadruple. You you go out to win, like Matt said, the first few Premier League games and and see where the season takes you. But um, but yeah, I mean, look I, I think it would be difficult without Mane. Uh, you know, I think in a strange way it looks like if he does leave Liverpool, he would be leaving at, you know, at a time when he's he's really at the peak of his powers. You know, I've really liked him coming central towards the start this uh, towards the end of the season and. And um, you know, I really like the way he plays there. I think he he plays with a lot of power and, and skill and, and and in a direct manner, which I think suits Liverpool. But all teams evolve, all teams change, and and you know, I think we were talking yesterday. You know, you think about the, the amount of forward players, especially that have left Liverpool. And Every time you tempted to think, oh my god, it's over. You know, the, the likes of Owen, the likes of Torres, Fowler, um, all these different players that have left throughout the years. Suarez and you know you, you get very worried don't you but but what Liverpool have done under Klopp is they've bought and sold very well and I would back them that if they sold Sadio Mane they'd sell him with a plan and with a um, with a purpose and they'd know where they're going next and they would evolve um, and they would sell at the right time so you know I don't want to see him go but then that's just sort of an emotional response to a player that we've really loved watching um, I do wonder for Liverpool whether it makes sense because he's got a year left on his contract. That's what he's decided that he'd like to leave. Um, you know, you can cash in now and maybe reinvest that money in a, in a younger player who sort of carries them into the next. Um, to the next stage of this team because I think what we've seen, you know, sort of hiding in plain sight in the last two years is is a t- uh, you know Liverpool sort of. Signing younger players and bringing bringing the average age of the team down, and starting to plan for that next step. So, um you know, I think at some point they had to sacrifice one of the front three. And Mane, I think, is the one that they would probably they could probably do um, in the best way possible with, with by getting a decent fee and not hurting them too much in terms of on the pitch and also their image. You know, I think if they sold. Salah, it would look very much more like they were a selling club. Whereas if they sold money, it would more more look like they were making a, a sort of ruthless decision. Um, so it's what all the clubs do. You know, Manchester United used to do it. You know, you, you, you make these decisions even sometimes before it looks like um, is necessary. But um, I can't kind of why they're doing it, even if they'll be to the same go.
1: Now on on it though, have Liverpool ever been in a position of strength like this to see one of those? Forward players go, as Joe mentioned before, the likes of Fowler, Owen, Torres. I mean, that where the squad is as well. A lot of people very quick yesterday, certainly on social media, to say, "Oh, this might be the end of a cycle under Jurgen Klopp. He's got to rebuild Liverpool." Well, the rebuild's well and truly already underway with the the, the young core of the side that has been being built. And in Alison Becker, a goalkeeper, will, will surely go on for for years and years. Doesn't matter if he's getting close to to 30 or not. But have Liverpool ever been in that position of strength to perhaps evolve and bring in a forward right at the top of the game, when they're sitting right at the top of the game like this, to be that focal point? And second part of the question, do you think it's time for a number nine, an out-and-out forward to come into the Liverpool system? Or would you kind of be more looking at at one of those kind of versatile options, as we've said for so long, a a second Diogo Jota?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, in terms of the first part of the question, I think, yeah, you are spot on Liverpool are in are in a brilliant position, aren't they? I mean, Luis Diaz was one that was meant to be for this summer, but they've done it a little bit early. And I think that'll be hugely beneficial, whether Sadio Mane had, had stayed or, or not this summer. That was always going to be big to have those few months in which he's already looked fantastic. But obviously with the preseason with the extra bit of experience and, and ability to slot into this Liverpool team, I think that's only going to increase next season and hopefully we can see, you know, a few more goals and and the kind of return, really, in, in the goals and assists that he kind of deserves, really, for, for the positions and, and the places he's putting himself consistently on the pitch. So I think, yeah, in terms of what Liverpool have already got, Diogo Jota obviously scored a, a huge number of goals this season. Mohamed Salah's has already confirmed that he's going to be there. It's not like Sadio Mane is the man and they've got to, to replace like-for-like to, to come to the, the second part of the question, is it going to be like for like? It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think you can kind of go one of two ways. I think the the fact that Roberto Firmino was was already at Liverpool when Jürgen Klopp came in, it's not necessarily that he is wedded to that false number nine type thing. You know, Sadio Mane has, has kind of done that role really nicely over the last few weeks. But I think they've they've kind of got a bit a, a bit of an option really to to go and and do do something a little bit different this summer if they want to do that. I think probably the most likely is that they'd get another Diogo Jota type that can play in a couple of different positions. That's what we've seen, isn't it? With with Luis Diaz, obviously, Mohamed Salah can play through the middle as well. They they are going to have options, but I think the well the the, the sort of murmurs of, of Sadio Mane potentially wanting to to go to buying sort of started coming out about a week or so ago, and my kind of concern at that point was that. Is that why they signed Luis Diaz? Is that why they wanted him to replace Sadio Mane? But it, it doesn't it doesn't appear that that's the case. It, it seems to be that they will get a replacement for for Mane in, in addition to that, which I think is is vital. You want those sort of five top quality forward options. You, you want Liverpool to be in that position again next season. So, yeah, as long as as long as they replace him, you'd back them to to get the the right player. And what kind of player that is, I, I don't. I don't quite know. It. Like I say, you you kind of go one or two ways with it, but whichever way they go, they've got so many quality options that even if it took a little bit of time for whoever it is that was signed to come in, you've still got plenty of, of depth to be able to start next season. Absolutely flying anyway.
1: Yeah, what's your take on it, Joe? Because I mean, one thing the Liverpool recruitment team have been so often, certainly under Michael Edwards, now of course Julian Ward from from this summer is. Innovative and creative, for example, when Coutinho left for the huge fee he went, there was never that like-for-like replacement come in. It's it found a different way to to build positions and build elements of the team and construct it. I mean, over the last 24 hours, I've seen across social media, Darwin Nunes immediately kind of being the man that everyone wanted. Christopher Nkunku has been another two very, very different styles of, of,
0: of player. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I do wonder, with Mane moving centrally, as he has done, whether they will go for, you know, I don't think there's such a thing, really, as a traditional striker, you know, I, I totally agree with Matt, I don't think he's wedded to this um, false nine type type player, uh, because, look, Mane's come in and he hasn't really been a false nine, has he? You know, he's played sort of further forward than I think Firmino plays. Um, but but Liverpool have still made that that front three work. So you know I think for Liverpool it's about having having options that that work in different circumstances, isn't it? And, and moving people around. Um, Darwin Nunes is someone that it sort of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, and sometimes you know that that that's not how it always works in football. But you know I look at that think God, that would probably that would probably make sense for Liverpool, but whether his price tag too big and. I do wonder whether Liverpool getting Diaz and him being the instant um, success that he's been will add a few few million pounds onto any transfer fee of anyone coming in from Portugal, certainly to Liverpool, um, in the coming years. But but yeah, I mean, I think it'd be really interesting. I wonder whether they will evolve. I wonder whether they will do something different. Um, I, I still think they will probably like to sign a midfielder in the next sort of, you know, in the near future or the next 12 months. So, um, yeah it'd be interesting to see what they do um but i've, I've got a sneaky feeling the darwin Númenes direction is, is the way they might go but again that's just a sneaky feeling that's that's not um based on any fact
2: I think uh, Christopher Nkunku would be the one for me, just in terms of the, the volume of goals. He, he just looks like he looks like a Liverpool player. I think you can kind of, you can almost do a little bit of both as as well with him in terms of he can be that proper number nine, but he can play a little bit deeper, can play off either side as well. I think that wouldn't wouldn't massively shock me. I know there's sort of links with him for a number of different clubs, obviously off the back of, of this season, but I suspect you could probably do a deal a little bit cheaper than, than Darwin Nunez, but. It'd be interesting to see which way Liverpool go, but the absolute crucial thing for me is that Liverpool will go and get a replacement and and won't let Sadio Mane leave until they've got that. So, yeah, whoever it is, I'm sure they'll get it right.
1: Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how it does play out. Well, that is us for this edition of the Blood Red podcast. Looking back, of course, on those scenes in Paris, the continued fallout that will come across the Liverpool Echo website, as well as dipping our toe into some transfer chat, which I'm sure is now going to get cranked up throughout the course of the summer. But from myself, Guy Clark, Joe Rimmer and Matt Addison, thanks for your time and your company here on Blood Red. It's bye for now.